darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. The Thoth deck is one of the most famous and influential tarot decks ever put together, and the artist behind its explosively energetic and colorful cards was Lady Frida Harris, a longtime friend and collaborator of Aleister Crowley. We'll pay homage to this artist, author, and mystic as Rosemary Salik and I continue our look at Women of the Occult. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. Welcome back, Rosemary. Thank you for having me again. So today we're going to discuss the life and times of Lady Frida Harris. Indeed. She's uh, famous particularly for uh, having created uh, the Thoth Tarot deck. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's the artist behind that deck. I think that's like the biggest thing that she's famous for. It is very much, uh, in my opinion, the opus of her work. Because Mm -hmm. not to say that she didn't have uh, a deep devotion to the fine arts before, but she even expressed to Crowley at one point that the work that they were doing together was the, the realization of an art form from within herself that she was striving to manifest for years. Mm-hmm. And uh, beforehand, she very much identified as uh, a, a fine artist who did um, like whimsical folk tale style books. Mm-hmm. Um, she identified with the surrealist movement. So she uh, had an, a pseudonym for herself, of Jesus Chutney. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I suppose many women at the time felt compelled to hide behind a a sort of masculinized archetype of themselves in order to have more free movement within Mm. circles that were very much dominated by uh, a lot more of an elite uh, male gender but she couldn't help uh, having uh, her tongue firmly in cheek when coming up with that Absolutely. one, I'm sure. Absolutely. <laughs> so there was the Victorian whimsy that came through with her. <laughs> um, she was a feisty, fiery, yet complex, demure Victorian woman. Um, upper class, of course, being the wife of, uh, of a politician. I believe her husband's name was Percy. Mm-hmm. Percy Harris, who was a, an aspiring politician. So she played the the dutiful wife. Mm-hmm. And in those times, women were to uh, develop characters of their being. So what that entailed were things like becoming an accomplished painter or studying a new language or 
uh, becoming cultured through refined feminine pursuits that were perceived as such at the time. Mm -hmm. So I found it really interesting that she found a way to still engage in the fine arts aspect of her pursuits, yet elevate it to a more ambitious place when she uh, reached out to Crowley to illustrate his now great tome that we <laughs> love and enjoy. Crowley described the uh, the Book of Thoth, the, the Thoth deck, the Thoth tarot deck, as the vindication of my life's work for the past 44 years and will be the compass and power of the good ship magic for the next 2,000 years. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's <laughs> no small, uh, no small undertaking, really. No, and and I found that um, when we uh, dove into our individual deeper studies of Lady Frida Harris, we both came across a lot of information on how she was a lot more intellectual about her process when it came to magic mm -hmm. or occult workings. Uh, it, intellectual, even in the sense of. Uh, visualizing compositions mathematically as inspired by the Italian Renaissance. And those great ma masters were very devoted to, um, you know, the the golden mean and, mm -hmm. you know, the the mapping out of, of uh, perspective mm -hmm. um, militantly. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, some of that aspect, that mathematical aesthetic, really shines, I find, in the deck. When you mm -hmm. look at, like, such cards as the world. Um, yeah. Where she has the constellations, the sort of the belt of the constellations. Yeah. The universe card as the, because uh, it's traditionally the world card yeah. and it became the universe card for mm -hmm. this, uh, in this case. And it's, uh, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of movement. Yes. I think that's the biggest change that's immediately obvious with this deck as compared to some previous decks and even a lot of most decks since mm. is that there's so much movement in her imagery. Absolutely. And I found her deck, which is my personal favorite one to read from, and I have plenty that have been mm -hmm. given to me over the years and some of which I've had come to me through various sources. Mm -hmm. um, but I've always found that the dynamic movement of her work it lends itself greatly to visualization and trance and mm -hmm. um, invoking, intuiting. What I find interesting too, though, is that she herself had a very particular perspective on what the tarot deck's role was. And I'm going to see if I can find that quote mm -hmm. that she wrote in one of her letters to Crowley. Um, she said something to the effect of, contrary to everybody's impression of the tarot deck, tarot cards were not intended for the purpose of divination. They are a map of the universe, and they might quite easily be compared to the symbols of mathematics. Regarded as such, they represent convenient means of stating cosmic problems. I have made an effort in the present pack to embody this current mode of the century. Therefore, I have tried to introduce among the cards an element of time 
in nearly all of the designs. The straight line of the former cards, such as the check patterns, the rays of the sun, the chart of the universe and the stars, expressed as curves. I hope to convey the idea of movement. This really means that you can look at any of the pictures thinking in what I may describe as four dimensions. This requires great concentration and is an incentive to meditation. Mm-hmm. And she certainly achieved that. I mean, mm-hmm. the the sense of movement in each of the cards really uh, helps to remind us that there's that whole idea of the tarot being also the rota, the wheel. Absolutely. And it feels like each card wants to move on to the next and that sort of thing. So, And it's interesting, too, because I've heard many uh, different occultists speak of the tarot deck as a grimoire of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking in particular of Freytor S., <laughs> who has talked about um, the tarot, Major Arcana in particular, almost as a occult equivalent of the Stations of the Cross. Mm, yeah. Where you meditate from, you know, preconception through the Stations of the Mysteries of Life unto the end and afterlife. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always thought it would be really cool to do a massive hallway, like a labyrinth of yeah. sorts with the Major Arcana as an installation piece larger than life size. Mm-hmm. I remember living with a, a bunch of people who um, were very much into the BOTA mm-hmm. and uh, they had gotten some giant size tarot trumps uh, done up. I don't remember if they had all of them. I think they had all of them and they would put up they would do these tarot circles and they would put up the one that they were discussing mm-hmm. uh, for the tarot circle and that sort of thing. Um, and they were really beautiful, but it would be great to do something like that or, even, Absolutely. you know, <laughs> even more so. <laughs> it's interesting, too, because um, having come across some of the s- same sources that we've uh, reflected on with Lady Frida Harris, you recognize there was this one point where Crowley was really pushing her to, quote unquote, make a neutral tarot deck Mm, so that people can get lost in the meditation but what i find so comical about that is that um she very pointedly comes back at crowley and says you know i will be doing nothing of the sort like (laughs) i will be creating the the tarot deck as you know as my highest self yeah. indicates, and that's what you're going to receive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, though, by being true to the um, uniqueness of her aesthetic and, and approach, I find it still lends, if not more so, to that meditation because she was so solidly devoted to mm-hmm. the, the uniqueness of her her offering aesthetically. Yeah, what she brought to the table was pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess um, maybe we should talk a little bit about. Um, well, you know what we we intended to start this with a little ode to Mercury, because Mercury was throughout this period when they when she was working at the uh, Thoth deck, Mercury was very important and forefront in her mind at the time. Absolutely. He was definitely the archetypal portal that she 
devoted herself to and in her Victorian modesty had come to express to Crowley that she felt that she had not fully reached uh, Mercury to his satisfaction and therefore he was becoming quite the trickster and wreaking mm-hmm. havoc in her process, which, of course, as you know, in the deck, there's like four different renditions of the, of the yeah. Magus or the magician that she had Mercury be <laughs> uh, represented in. Uh, so, yes, if you would do the honors of uh, propitiating our beloved uh, Hermes, Mercury, Toth, Jehuti, etc., Jungitur ein wati wates, rex inclute rabdu, Hermes tuenias verba nefanda ferens. This was a little phrase included in Grimorum Sanctissimi, which uh, is included with the Paris working and uh, has a series of... Um, indications for uh, how to set up this particular working. And it's got uh, several little mantras, uh, each individually to a separate god. Yes. And so we have this one dedicated to Mercury. And the reason we wanted to use this in particular was because this is what Crowley had uh, advised Frida to use, Lady Frida. Yes, in order to kind of uh, quell the mm-hmm. wrath of Mercury, who Crowley himself said was um, the hardest. How did he put it? The hardest to the hardest to propitiate. Yes, and the easiest to offend, essentially. Yes. <laughs> so I think it's just a testament to the divine uh, shapeshifter quality and psychopomp mm-hmm. that Mercury is. Yeah, in it, in all of his holy glory. Um, so we definitely, in this uh, edition, deeply honor his blessings mm-hmm. of the quicksilver uh, power. Yeah. Incidentally, we've got uh, Mercury and Thoth looking down on us uh, in statue form. <laughs> <laughs> and I burned a little uh, incense for Mercury earlier and uh, did a little invocation to set us up uh, mm-hmm. so that we felt pretty good to go excellent that is great and uh there was that difficulty getting that mercury card down Mm -hmm. um and so which i guess isn't of all the cards for the book of thoth (laughs) (laughs) that's the one you got to get right so you got to take however many times you know however many shots at it you can absolutely and um i personally find it to be my favorite card in the entire deck Mm mm-hmm uh, the the one that became the official card is magnificent, but the other efforts were just as fascinating. Yeah, which they are included with certain decks when you mm-hmm. get them. I think it's like a particular size of deck. I don't know if it's the same brand as the usual, you know, all the other decks, or if it's a separate brand or whatever. But yeah, uh, I wonder about that. Um, as we're going deeper, I I did want to. Um, just give people a little bit of a background of who Lady Frida Harris was, because very little is known about her. She was extremely private. Mm-hmm. Um, 
off the top, very much like we did with Dion Fortune, I wanted to uh, share with everyone that she was born in 1877, August 13th, 1877. And uh, she did come, of course, from... I don't want to say like a well-off family, but definitely they were comfortable. There mm-hmm. wasn't anything in her path that had suffering <laughs> in its way um, to her expression. Um, and she, because of her intellectual pursuits in terms of her reading material, she had like a Catholic kind of uh, bent to her reading materials which attracted the interest of her future husband, Mm -hmm. uh, Percy Harris. And when you say a Catholic bent, I mean, I I take that as meaning universal rather Mm -hmm. than uh, what, you know, often people might have associations with. Yeah, so they shared a lot of uh, intellectual materials back and forth almost as a form of courting each Mm -hmm. other. And um, again, I think that's lending a little bit of a insight into uh, Lady Frida Harris's nature, first and foremost, being very uh, solar in her consciousness, very intellectual, very, um, very much... Leo. (laughs) Yeah, she was a Leo. So very, very much not afraid to bring logic and facts into the process. Mm -hmm. Um, She felt more comfortable in that realm. Um, Then when later on in her one-on-one studies with Crowley, they started to get more deeper into this sort of intuitive mysteries and the Mm. meditations. And then you start to see, like, she starts to get a little shifty in her seat, you know, a little uncomfortable. I think that's common enough for, especially for those of us with an intellectual bent, once you're taken outside of that comfort zone Mm -hmm. and you have to try and engage with the intuition, it's a little difficult. Which is ironic because she is a painter. She's an mm. artist. So she did work very much with feel and form, space, composition, mm-hmm. intuition. But I don't think she felt very comfortable calling it that. Yeah. You know, she liked to see all of these lines and forms as symbolic representations of nature, the science of nature, the science of nature, the language of nature. Um, yeah, it seemed like she wanted to always bring things back to the painting, and maybe it was like mm-hmm. an intuitive sense that, that <laughs> that's right. what she needed to do. You right. know? Well, one of the um, people, one of the contemporaries of her world that influenced her was, of course, the great mystic of the 20th century, Rudolf Steiner, who was very famous for creating many, many modes of thought and uh, protocol for people that wanted to expand themselves spiritually outside of the usual dominant religions. So he's the one that um, was famous for anthroposophy, mm-hmm. um, for eurythmy, uh, for creating the Waldorf school, ah. for bringing into consciousness people's deeper scientific and mystical relationship to nature by turning back to biodynamic farming practices when they worked with the earth so that how you worked with the earth was in synchronicity with the phases and signs of the moon that change and shift every two and a half Mm. days. 
and uh, he would conduct scientific experiments to prove that our alignment with the cosmos actually has a scientifically measurable result hmm. in food yielding, like in, in what we yield in our gardens. Hmm. Um, of course, with the initial inspiration being how to liberate ourselves from the the harsh times that came with the depression to follow mm. and everything, right? Yeah. To kind of try to stave those things off. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because Lady Frida Harris was very much interested in anthroposophy, which is, and I quote, a research philosophy of social and spiritual intuition that gave primacy to developing the faculties of imagination via open and honest analytical methods. Interesting. I like that. I think uh, it's funny because my mind's going to something completely seemingly unrelated, but it's going to Nietzsche. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the fact that Nietzsche was trying to point out the fact that uh, when we just have the intellect running the show, we end up with dead matter. Absolutely. And what we need was some kind of re-engagement with that intuition and that, you know, the other mm -hmm. parts of ourselves. I really feel her art gave her that, mm -hmm. that freedom to flow with her intuition, even if she didn't feel comfortable saying that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she was very, very Victorian in many ways mm -hmm. and kept that kind of personal... Yeah, we, feeling too close to her chest. We, yeah. we talked about that, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, there's um, some anecdotes related to her where, I mean, she had direct personal exchanges, like she would meet with Crowley Absolutely. and, and uh, she would pay him in order to help him survive because he was struggling That's so right. much. And she paid him for spiritual teaching, mm -hmm. um, which is actually kind of proscribed by the AA, really. So mm -hmm. it's not really correct to be taking, accepting money for te spiritual teaching. However, I mean, it was just basically a means, uh, probably more for Percy, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, than it was for anything else. Yeah. But it was just to keep, help, help Crowley stay afloat and that sort of thing. But she spent a lot of time in his presence and, and uh, mm -hmm. sharing ideas and uh, learning directly from him. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure he was also uh, gaining quite a bit from her presence as well, of course. Because, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I think they, uh, she was, as you had mentioned when we were chatting a little earlier, she's a bit of a hothead <laughs> in, <laughs> to match Crowley. And uh, so uh, it, I, I thought it was interesting that... It's uh, really great because there was a point of time where Crowley was like, could you not just paint the female figure a little bit more like Aubrey Beardsley did? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. And yeah. uh, there was this whole diatribe that unfolded in a letter Um after yeah. that request, do you recall that? Yeah, there's a little, I have a little quote from that, as all, a matter of fact, because I just love it. It's delicious. She says, know what you won't do shall be the whole of my law. <laughs> <laughs> I can bear many things, chiblains included. I forgot to look up chiblains, whatever the heck that means. But I will not draw a lady like Aubrey Beardsley. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's basically shut it down. Right? It's just like, um, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and I love that. And they had these constant, like, feisty yeah. crashes. And then, um, 
each saw the other as insufferable and and then they would come back to each other and she had a deep respect for Crowley. Mm -hmm. And I love the, uh, there's the anecdote about uh, she had been um, setting up exhibitions Mm -hmm. and uh, Crowley wasn't being kept in the loop and it's completely reasonable. You can see both sides of the story. You can see completely why she's trying to do things the way she's doing them because Crowley's got an infamous name and uh, she's got to keep, if she wants to keep sponsors for the exhibitions and for the cards in general, then she's got to try and keep it, keep those two things separate and keep his name kind of on the down low. And meanwhile, he's feeling like he's being shut out and excluded from it. So it's like a difficult situation in that sense. And you can see both sides of it. Yes. And we're talking in particular about like when a great amount of the paintings were finally complete. It was a project that was supposed to take six months, mm-hmm. but it ended up being closer to like five years or so, yeah. if not longer, Yeah, to complete. And all the while, she had to hear the ragings of the Second World War yeah. around her while she was like, she had this little, um, just to backtrack, because of who she was as... Um, the loyal wife of a politician. She had her duties as a wife that she felt were a little bit of a weight on achieving artistic Mm -hmm. things. (laughs) So she had to um, whisk herself away to a private, like a private cabin, I believe, Mm -hmm. and really focus on on the great work without distraction. Yeah. So she went deeply into hermitage. And and really, in a very devoted kind of way, slogged away at these works with with a great mission, mm-hmm. <laughs> a great sense of mission. Um, every so often having to, you know, have Crowley come in and check in on her and, okay, how are your magical studies going? And uh, did you... Did you do yoga today? Did you meditate? Did you, you know... Mm-hmm. <laughs> he would teach her all sorts of um, tools of the of the of the path of course gamatria mm-hmm. astrology and at one point she had to take on she had to focus on a specific form of divination mm-hmm. ironically she did not choose the tarot no she did not <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, for the aa path which uh, she was she was an aa member and working her way through that and at one point you have to choose a form of divination mm-hmm. to go with. And she chose the Yi King or Yi Ching, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, which makes sense because it would appeal to her intellectual bent. Absolutely. Yeah. And she also, by the way, um, I believe was exposed to Buddhist concepts mm-hmm. through her mother. So she had a resonance from a very young age with Eastern philosophy and thought. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that she would drift toward that. She didn't quite find herself fond of uh, of other representatives of deity. Like I know in one of my readings of her letters, she was expressing something about, oh, I'm not really down with Egyptian gods. <laughs> and I, I was like, sacrilege. <laughs> um, uh, but I find it great that she was very candid about things like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, she she had no fear to just really put it out there with Crowley. 
Which it, that's an interesting subject too, because uh, when it comes to different deities or different uh, cultural mm-hmm. backgrounds or backdrops for these things, um, I think a lot of people do run into trouble with uh, trying to connect with, for instance, Egyptian deities. Yes, um, and they might end up instead trying to go to something a little more Celtic or a little mm-hmm. more, you know, uh, Eastern or what have you. But, right. Uh, there was a quote about that somewhere I read. I just can't recall where, but you get the gist of uh, of her letters back and forth with Crowley being both very heated, but then also very tender and respectful. And she genuinely felt that because of her station in life, a lot of her opportunities to develop spiritually were stifled. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just having such a like a, a straight-laced sort of position in society with all of its expectations. I'm not saying it's a hardship. I'm saying it's just it has its duties. Yeah. And she felt that with the emphasis of that so strong in her life that she was neglectful of her inner spiritual world until she painted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was described as uneducated, And I think she was, in a way, kind of a relic of that old Victorian world of women being raised to have certain special skills and emphasize those, but not to be educated, not to be self-empowered, but to essentially be in service as a wife Mm -hmm. and a mother and that sort of thing. Yeah, what I find so amazing is that she was the complete antithesis of that in her private Mm -hmm. life because... um, I believe in in one of the periodicals, it was stating something to the effect that when her estate was, you know, being uh, dealt with after her death, there was evidence of of uh, Masonic mm-hmm. regalia, paraphernalia in her keeping. There were um, indications that she was a co-mason. I believe. Yeah, you know, it seemed like uh, uh, that was kind of, there wasn't direct evidence if it was a co-mason or if it was, um, there's a different branch that women could be I part of I think it had well. to do with just where a woman's place as yeah. in that order would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me to think of her as uneducated seems preposterous. Like yeah. you cannot be in the presence of, of this kind of secret order without being like a highly <laughs> intelligent <laughs> individual. Yeah. And, you know, given her her background, she had a lot of exposure to uh, educational opportunities that mm-hmm. perhaps others that were less fortunate did not have um, in terms of their financial station mm-hmm. or class or whatever. So I just don't really, I don't accept this image of Lady Frida Harris being uneducated. I think that's a kind of smoke and mirrors. Yeah, I think if anything, it's more uh, indicatory of uh, the English class system and the Absolutely. way that people were viewed, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, oh, you don't have, uh, you know, you didn't go to uh, Trinity Cambridge <laughs> College so <laughs> or Oxford or whatnot. Right, right. Um, but yeah, as far as the masonry thing goes, and there was also the fact that when she, because she was also a member of the OTO, mm-hmm. and when she joined the OTO, she was given an equivalency to a degree because she already had an existing Masonic standing. Exactly. So, yeah. Yes. 
And uh, Crowley definitely considered her as one of the few people that he had very deep respect for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love the fact that the little anecdote of one of the exhibitions that uh, she had put on and Crowley had not been told about. And yeah. so he happened to go by and discover it. And uh, he went there fuming and wanting to confront her. And she was, when he, he when she saw him there, she was all flustered, mm-hmm. but he was really pleased at how well it was put together. Yeah, it's like, think, this so. show looks amazing. Yeah. But anyway, as I was saying, <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I just love the fact that he yeah. was, he was able to concede the fact that, oh no, actually this is okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is really well done. So I'm yeah. really happy with this so what was it like some, the ace of swords card or something yeah. was in the window and he was like what <laughs> <laughs> so i find the humanity of their relationship really endearing mm-hmm. and the fact that yeah they were they were so close right up until uh crowley's death and mm-hmm. thereafter she still um I mean, there was that point in time when uh, she she made a little comment or little comment. I should put, <laughs> rephrase that maybe. When she went and saw Kenneth Anger's film. Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> uh, the inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. Mm-hmm, in 1954. Yes. Um, she was furious. Yes. Um, because she saw it as a betrayal of their friend. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, and saw it as just trying to make make it seem lurid and farcical and and just you know not not representing it correctly. Well, it's, and it's ironic to me because like uh, you know, Lady Frida Harris may be turning in her grave hearing me say this, but I absolutely love um, a lot of the aesthetics and visuals and reverence that I see in uh, a lot of Kenneth Anger's work. Mm-hmm. With regards to um, the high arts through film, the capturing of the ambiance of ritual, of symbolism, of form, of line, of composition. I mean, the very thing yeah. that Lady Frida Harris was doing in her own way on canvas. But I feel that um, he he definitely was ahead of his time. Yeah. He was ahead of his time. So. And I think she had a hard time in her old Victorian style way of being able to, you know, look at the Californians. <laughs> yes, I consider it, as we mentioned earlier, uh, a, a form of cultural dissonance. Yeah. And as you know, uh, at some point once the OTO became defunct, I believe what, 1947-ish, something like that. I cannot remember exactly. Um, however, it was at that point that she was being asked to come to the United States, Mm. knowing everyone was in awe. Of course, like she's Lady Frida Harris. She worked one-on-one with Crowley. Uh, they did the deck together. Mm -hmm. We should have her here as a, you know, an exalted thalamite, um, which she didn't relate to, you know, <laughs> um, and to speak of uh, women's role in Thelema and the New Aeon. And she was extremely uncomfortable with that. And she never mm. did take on that invite, invitation. Um, yeah, and you know, there's what she was saying about that made me think that it seemed as though maybe she was, had a lot of confidence issues because of uh having been 
the wife in support of this <laughs> political husband acutely feeling her lack of education because of the the fact that probably everybody is telling her that she's not educated and then you know that yeah. that kind of thing can psychologically mess you up so i think her the way she was looking at it was um i'm going to go tell tell these educated women what they should think and I'm going to try and represent this thing to them. I think it was probably like a self-confidence, you know. Um. Well, and you also have the um, the admission of her own heart that she did not consider herself to be a good pupil of Crowley mm -hmm. in the sense that she was very much um, resistant to the perhaps what she may have even perceived as orthodoxy within Thelema. Mm -hmm. Like the protocols, the observances, the rituals, the this, the that, which she personally, in some letters, out and out says they are of no use to me. Mm -hmm. I, f I find my, my spiritual place where I'm alive when I'm weaving visions mm -hmm. through, the, through the surface of of a canvas or what have you. Yeah, which I think is really beautifully thelemic right there. It's, you know? it's, this is why I find her to be such a complex and fascinating character because seemingly one thing is present, one thing's presented and then you understand there are so many more layers to her achievements. I mean, before she met Crowley, she was uh, regularly illustrating um, her own as I mentioned earlier, folk tales. I, I cannot remember. I think it was in the 1920 or 1825 or something. Oh, 1926. There was a book she published. Oh, uh, well, that's it. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> she was born in 1877. <laughs> Before her birth. What an achievement. Um, <laughs> really ahead of her time. <laughs> Way ahead of her time. <laughs> so, correction, in uh, 1926. <laughs> <laughs> she, she had... Uh, that, well, I was just going to say, yeah, book. she published a book called Winchelsea. I think that's the pronunciation of that. Um, or Winchelsea. Yeah. Which is what you just said. Winchelsea. <laughs> <laughs> Winchelsea. <laughs> um, the, the British can uh, cringe and... <laughs> um, but yeah, so there, it was an illustrated book combining mythology and nature mysticism. Absolutely. Uh, it was regarding the god Dionysus. Mm -hmm. and she was very him. fascinated by him. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's the antithesis of intellect, if you think about it. Mm -hmm. He was extremely, um, as everyone knows, primal force of nature. Yeah. A chthonic churning in the cauldron of the unknown and i mean that's very much what we do when we're artists mm -hmm. it's a it is a form of tapping into source or leaving oneself open as a vessel uh for the greater cosmic voice of eternity to speak to us in the microcosm mm -hmm. you know so i mean that is an extreme for me it's akin to a magician the witch the occultist that is the seer or an oracle or any of a host of an alchemist, you know, it's simply semantics to just um, say, oh, I'm not a thelemite, yeah. the way she did. Like, <laughs> she just did not like the, the overcoat that was was 
Crowley was trying to throw onto her, you know, mm. it's like, no, um, I'm devoted to the preservation of your legacy and our, our, um, co-conspiracy here <laughs> artistically. Um, but that's where her primary devotion resided. Yeah. That's the, uh, the, the difficulty of this is that, uh, I think when it comes to art, um, there's a common tendency to like, I remember, okay, just to simplify my, what I'm trying to say, I remember specifically uh, a couple of friends years ago who were, who had an argument evidently over whether or not art was magic, mm-hmm. like doing art was performing magic. Right. And, um, so the one person was fiercely, no, it's not, that's not performing magic. And I think his point was that it's, uh, it's important to uh, take seriously what you have to, the steps involved in doing magic and, and actually doing magic and not just coming up with some uh, escapist attempt to say, oh, I'm doing magic, but not actually doing all the work that's involved with magic. And I think that's where he was coming from. I see. It's a kind of ironic, though, because as an artist, one must be properly prepared. Absolutely. And there are many, many steps where one can uh, very consciously invoke the process of visualizing, manifesting, invoking, etc., as magical practices that are not separate from when you're casting a circle and doing your personal work mm-hmm. in relation yeah. to the macrocosm. I see these things as bleeding into each other as one force, like, People feel compelled to separate those things, but I find the deeper you go into your occult practices, your your true magical practices, all of these dimensions that are seemingly separate start to bleed together mm-hmm. as one current. I agree 100%. And so, I think that's probably why um, somebody like um, Lady Frida Harris would have had difficulty marrying the two ideas um, that you'd have on the one hand, you'd have this structured sort of approach. And then on the other hand, um, she was saying, I can't do it that way, but I, I can just do it in art. Mm-hmm. Let me do it in art. Yes. Because that, yes, I think doing art is like the, it's the, it's a pure way of channeling where you can lose yourself in channeling and you don't, because you can lose yourself and because, Generally, it's easy. It's it can be difficult for people to have a self consciousness of what's going on while that channeling's taking place. Uh, that's the difficulty that they have in trying to parse what it is there. You know, when you're saying, "Well, I, I can't do it that way, but I can do I can do it with art." Well, know? it's interesting because for myself, um, a lot of my visions do come from the dream world. Mm-hmm. which is, you know, that connection to the primal source of all. And when it comes through in my creation as an artist or even as a martial artist or as an occult practitioner, a witch, whatever overcoat someone wants to throw onto my process, it doesn't separate itself from each other. It's all interconnected. I can easily enter a trance and then start to... Um, channel things within a properly prepared circle and what have you when i do art i actually do prepare Mm -hmm. you know um 
or you know even if I'm like trancing out uh, and doing a uh, preliminary sketch on something I, I definitely have to be within a certain sacred space within myself to even receive that you know so my mm. entire being is the temple and yeah. the preparation um, it's not to exclude myself from other you know protocols of magic and preparation it's not to exclude myself from the the inner workings and the the um the ecosystem of what one must do in a magical circle and or working it's just that it's not just relegated to that spot i think yeah. as you go deeper with more experience it bleeds into everything yeah i think the person i was thinking of who was arguing for the idea that art was a form of magic uh, was also doing magic practices mm -hmm. and, and ritual whatnot yes. as well so it wasn't a case of like um i'm already doing magic so i don't need to do all that stuff mm. it was this is one other facet of this thing and it's interesting this theme seems to come up a lot in some of the future uh women of the occult Mm. that I wish to bring into the equation yeah. um, that are very similar in that sense of like the art and the trance of art is the magic and um, we'll kind of leave those names in, in the hidden realms <laughs> um, to come but when we do get there the connections will be made very clear mm-hmm uh, it's an it's an intriguing subject. Yeah. I think art is one of the greatest ways to engage with magic because, um, in fact, I feel like a lot of the time I'll have a lot more difficulty with ceremonial magic and with, um, you know, uh, yoga practices and that sort of thing, trying to get into the states that you're attempting to achieve um doing them through art can like in my case it would more often than not be music mm -hmm. i do some drawing as well and i there's an invocatory thing going on there as well but with music it's um it's not good unless it's invoking something you know what i mean yeah and the, you, you get that moment where um the process kicks into overdrive yeah. and the process has you now and yeah you're, you're surfing that cosmic wave yeah i think a lot of people like to call it the zone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah it's that uh that state it becomes like this tunnel vision where you just lose yourself and you're you're in it and so for me i think that that was lady frida harris's zone and when she was invoking the cards in her paintings which are absolute masterpieces every single one of them i feel that she came at them like a portal mm -hmm. into another reality which is what you know it's a doorway yeah it's what art does yeah absolutely and especially when it comes to something like the tarot it's interesting because Crowley originally um, met Lady Frida Harris in 1937 mm -hmm. um, at a, a dinner of some sort and yes. uh, they had a mutual friend who introduced them mm -hmm. and um so it wasn't long before she was you know doing aa work and that sort of thing mm -hmm. and crowley uh actually recommended that she 
paint the tarot as an exercise. I think mm. that's how this is originally came to be. And then it started to snowball. Yeah, and she something. took on the enthusiasm of that really intensely. Yeah. So um, I don't know that either of them really had any thought that it was going to be such a big thing as it turned out to be. It was mm -hmm. really just her chant. He was suggesting that, oh, this would be a good way to engage with it. Just, you yeah. know, try painting it and see what you come up with. <laughs> Absolutely. And she de definitely um, attributes her alchemy with Crowley as a unit mm -hmm. to finally pro providing the realm in which she could really let her visions loose mm -hmm. as she always wished to let them loose. Yeah. Um, and it, th the cards are a testament to that. Mm -hmm. They're very extremely complex, sublime. Uh, the color usage is definitely aware of higher spiritual principles and the impact of color theory and space. And um, it's, it's clear she mm -hmm. is extremely intelligent and very spiritually intuitive yeah. <laughs> with her uh, work. So it's interesting as well that Crowley himself is a painter and had done a lot of oil painting and whatnot. Um, so it's nice to think about that. It wasn't just that he was uh, here. You take this on because you're the artist here. It was like, no, you're the the better, <laughs> the better I'm, one to I handle this. I have to this. say, I'm extremely relieved that Crowley did that because, mm. um, you know, with all due respect to Crowley, um, I'm not a big fan of his art. Fair enough. Yeah, I think that's um, probably a sentiment that a lot of people would share. You know, there, there would be a lot of. Uh, Thelemites out there will be like, oh my God. <laughs> um, but no, with all due respect, it was very wise of him to mm -hmm. have Lady Frida Harris take it on. Yeah, so in that moment where she, okay, so you, get, you backtrack and you think of her saying of herself, well, I'm an extremely intellectual person. I have this process, this process, that process. But when she declined the invitation to speak in 1954 at a university about women's place in the new aeon, as we mentioned earlier, uh, her letters to Crowley revealed that she was most comfortable with the reactions that children had to her work, who were not trying to over-intellectualize her work and would come to her intuitively and say, Tell me more about the lust card. Yeah, what's your what? favorite card? Yeah, they would pick that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, the complexity of herself presenting as this, you know, intellectual, but, you know, uneducated. And, yeah. And, and, oh, my intuition's not... But meanwhile, like, everything that she does, everything that she's drawn to... It, it reveals a contrary yeah, aspect that's, to her Yeah, that's nature. why I think that's the there's the confidence thing that you can see there because mm -hmm. I recognize it uh, for my own self and in other people as well where it's that, uh, you know, you're worried that other people, I guess people think of it as the Denning-Kruger effect, um, I, which I don't think is actually accurate, but the way that it's popularly thought of is that uh, there's some people who think that uh, everybody else knows everything that they do, so they, they kind of downplay themselves and their own intelligence. And then uh, there's other types of people who assume they know everything and other people don't. 
And so there's that kind of, right. you know, dissonance there. So I think she falls into the former as I would feel often I end up feeling myself and a lot of uh, a lot of people tend to where they're they're lacking that confidence of, mm-hmm. you know, being able to just own the room. And uh, that's kind of what I sense with her. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating because in the grand scheme of things, the magnificent opus of her work speaks for itself as to the majesty of her artistic prowess and her her spiritual uh intuition being way more connected than she gave herself credit for yeah i think that's uh that's the shame of it just from what we are able to read of her Mm -hmm. life is that uh like in this case she's saying that uh the adults who would be looking at the cards would just be asking to have their fortunes read Mm -hmm. and this sort of thing and to her that was just kind of missing the point entirely Mm -hmm. whereas the kids were able to connect with them in an intuitive way Mm -hmm. and she she valued that a lot more yeah. So that's intriguing. Which I think was like uh, we were talking about the one uh, essay that we'd both read online that includes a number of uh, – it's on the Brill site. And mm-hmm. uh, it's got um, uh, a number of quotes from her, which I, I really value because that's that's the really interesting um, factual stuff, yeah. the stuff that we can really get at. The things that we haven't had the privilege to uh, be exposed to because of yeah. her being such an enigmatic figure. Yeah, and then the, I mean the the author of this essay. I mean they're they're making a thesis here that they're trying to get across. Mm-hmm. They're they're the thesis here is that um, she was inspired and taught by Crowley, but she wasn't actually engaging with the she wasn't uh, engaging with the Thelemic doctrines. No. And um, to me, I I I am a little critical of this essay for that reason because I yes. understand it as an essay as it is, but it's like uh, – and it's fine. Okay, this person has a thesis. They want to present the thesis. I don't find it particularly convincing myself, but uh, then it's like the type of thing where, okay, if this is one of those few scant things that we have mm-hmm. um, to form our image of – Lady Frida Harris based off of it's unfortunate because it's it seems like it's really highly colored by this this uh, author's I completely agree and so one of the valuable things I found about what we learned about Lady Frida Harris in this thesis was were the factual things that we didn't know about her privately but also in if you look at the um, the sort of additional sources to look into uh, the relationship between Lady Frida Harris and Aleister Crowley. It provides excellent uh, references to uh, resources that had letters that they passed between yeah. the two of them. And I think that would be really intriguing mm. to go deeper into. Yeah, absolutely. Because those were the, the highlights for me. Absolutely. Of um, the the nature and and brilliance of Lady Frida Harris really speaking on the page. Yeah. I mean, this author's uh, closing paragraph was, uh, if I can read that just to give an example, um, because this sums it up. Instead of becoming a dedicated Thelemite, she finally understood that her true path was the inspiration, concentration, and joy one experienced in painting. And to me... If you're saying that's somehow different than what Thelema is or the doctrines of Thelema, then you're not quite understanding what Thelema is because we're talking about do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. 
the idea of finding your true will and doing that and nothing else. Which she fully adhered to. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like... Absolutely. <laughs> and interestingly, that earlier quote that you mentioned about do what I, what I won't do will also <laughs> yeah. be, you know, <laughs> that was brilliant. So, I mean, if you can not see the pure force of someone being true to their will, being, you know, reflected in, in that kind of a statement, then, yeah. you know, I don't think that Lady Frida Harris was the simple, demure Victorian woman. I think she definitely had a majesty about her and was a profound force of nature and is one of my favorite occult artists um, of all time. Mm -hmm. She's right up there with my sacred, uh, you know, H.R. Giegers and the like. Like, to mm. me, she pierced the veil that deeply and to this day has an impact with her work through the endless tarot decks that are floating around the world. Absolutely, yeah. I would love to be able to see the original paintings. I know, myself. I was thinking about that too. It sounds like uh, they were actually, uh, a great number of them were done during wartime when uh, there was uh, um, restrictions on, mm -hmm. on ma certain materials and stuff like that because right. of, you know, uh, um, oh, whatever the term is for that wartime. Like rations. Rationing and that yeah. sort of thing, yeah. So uh, as a result, they weren't built to last. Mm -hmm. So that's super unfortunate, and I don't know what state they're in or, you know, where they're yeah, at at this point. Yeah, it would be fascinating mm -hmm. to... Um, receive a peek of those yeah um, for sure but yes lady frida harris a great and profound artist and in my opinion occult practitioner yeah despite her self-deprecating <laughs> <laughs> uh, treatment of her being and again as mentioned earlier this theme of uh, strong intuition and magical working through arts crops up again and again in many women of the occult mm -hmm. figures to come. Yeah. And I love the fact that going back to uh, the first quote I had made today um, from Crowley, where he's saying, um, the Thoth deck was the vindication of my life's work for the past 44 years and will be the compass and power of the good ship magic for the next 2000 years. Indeed. And yeah. And I mean, just uh, to close with a, a little statement from uh, in a letter from uh, Lady Frida Harris to Crowley. I am only clear about one thing. I will die trying to see my own guardian angel. And you are a wonderful help and guide. And I am very grateful. There it is. Long live Lady Frida Harris. And she shall. And her great works. <laughs> and yeah, long live her credit for the car, the deck as well. Mm -hmm. You know, it's important to make sure that we actually give credit where credit is due, of Absolutely. course. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rosemary, for joining me once again. Thank you. And uh, we'll continue to celebrate all these wonderful women who have helped keep all this occult flame moving through the aeons yes the keepers of the sacred hearth mm -hmm. um, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here again and i look forward to our next chapter of mystery and thank you mercury hail mercury <laughs> hail mercury <laughs> mercurius maximus ah, Odin, whatever name i might give thee the wondrous <laughs> okay 93 93
Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. <laughs>